We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friend at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. The news last weekend was as scary as it gets. Gunman takes hostages inside a Texas synagogue. It was terrifying. It was overwhelming. Uh, And we're still processing. But it ended with the local rabbi and remaining hostages distracting the gunman and running for their lives. Police charged in shortly after and the gunman was shot dead. To Jewish community and religious leaders across the country... The story that played out in Colleyville last weekend was a stark reminder. It just showed that it could happen anywhere. And therefore, I think any institution, any house of worship, wherever they are, uh, now needs to raise that level of security and a level of awareness that it could happen. It could happen anyplace. This week on 880 In-Depth, how training in Colleyville helped save lives in the synagogue there and why that training is needed more than ever today finding that balance between having an open door but having still having a robust security program and a secure perimeter for a synagogue is critical. Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Tim Scheld. Add Colleyville, Texas to a long line of locations across America where hate for Jews has caused great pain. In 2018, it was the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh that left 11 dead. The following year, the shooting at the synagogue in Poway, California, and here in our area, the shooting at the Kosher Grocery in Jersey City and the attack on a rabbi in Muncie in New York. What we found in Colleyville is that training for the worst does save lives. We wanted to hear more about that and security in places of worship like synagogues, so we got on the phone with Evan Bernstein, CEO and National Director of Community Security Service. The leading volunteer security organization in the Jewish communal space, we've been around since 2007. We've trained over 6,500 volunteers in communal volunteer security, and we have teams that are all over the country that have been trained at a very high level protect their synagogues and help secure the perimeter and work in coordination with off-duty law enforcement and private security. Bernstein spoke to our reporter Peter Haskell about the case in Colleyville. I think unfortunately, you know, some kind of an incident I think was was very predictable. In my conversations with, with security leaders, uh, even at the end of 2021, uh, uh, people were saying that there was the odds of something happening in the Jewish communal space was high. The trends have been there. We've, we've seen a, a long string of these kind of large-scale events, whether it was uh, Pittsburgh or 
or Poway or you know Muncie or Jersey City and now Texas, uh, you have these trends. And plus what we saw over the summer with the war uh, between Israel and Gaza, you, you saw how anti-Israel sentiment turned into physical acts of Jew hatred uh, on the streets in, in many cities around the country. So I think the climate was certainly ripe for something like this uh, to happen. Uh, the fact it was what it was is you know completely as unpredictable, but having an act of hate taking place uh, at a synagogue is, is something I think a lot of people saw uh, as, as a potential threat happening. You talk about Pittsburgh and Poway and Jersey City. I, I guess I'm just curious, are, the, are these individual blips, are they, is it a blip here, is it a blip there, or are these things all tied together? Is there a, a thread that runs through them? I think the thread, first of all, is, is that they're, you know, they're, all, they're all acts of anti-Semitism. Uh, they're all acts of incredible hate towards the Jewish people. And every one of them, uh, you know, we don't know about Texas yet, but certainly the previous ones, people were online uh, doing research, getting radicalized uh, online, um, and going to chat rooms and talking with other individuals and, and getting their, their, their thought process uh, backed up by others to make it feel normalized. And not everybody, you know, takes that kind of thought process and actually acts on it. Uh, but we've seen lone wolves that do, and the lone wolf is the hardest person for law enforcement uh, to track or prevent from uh, attacking an organization or, or a synagogue or a house of worship. And so, you know, those are all those are the trends that these are people that are that are kind of random individuals that are very difficult to track that have, you know that have really gotten somewhat radicalized online. And again, we'll know more about uh, what happened in Texas in, the, in, in that in that uh, perpetrator. But uh, the others before that were, were all in that way, and, and, and everything that I've read so far seems to think that that might be the case right here, but we'll have to learn more. Good evening. Sources tell CBS News the suspect was not known to U.S. intelligence officials. In fact, they're not sure how he got from New York here to Texas. We're also learning more about that high-stakes standoff as hostages are starting to speak out for the first time. It was terrifying. It was overwhelming. Uh, and we're still processing Appearing on CBS Mornings, Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker described the tense 11-hour standoff at Congregation Beth Israel and the moment he realized the man who claimed to be homeless was taking them hostage. I heard a click, and it could have been anything, and it turned out that it was his gun. The rabbi in Texas, Charlie Citron Walker, said that he was guided by training. He ended this effectively for the hostages by throwing a chair and running out. Now, the CSS didn't train him, but you do training. What, what kind of things are involved with this? So the, the training that the rabbi received was, was critical, and it's through our partners, uh, at SCN, which is also the Community Security Initiative, you know, part of the UJA New York, and uh, they do the trainings in the local New York area for synagogues, uh, you know, active shooter trainings and hard to target. What we do as doing volunteer security is training actual physical teams. We don't do a general, you know, we don't do a general training for the synagogue. We are looking to do targeted trainings to actually build a team of individuals who are, have ongoing training to be eyes and ears security outside of their institutions. To, to be as proactive against a, a terror or threat attack as possible. And that, that is really our differentiator. And that, that's the training that we do, and it's ongoing training uh, online and in person. 
uh, with with you know congregations across the country that uh, that want to have volunteers that are either the sole uh, security outside of their synagogue or ideally in coordination with off-duty law enforcement or private security. Give us a sense what that looks like. What kind of training is it? What what are you teaching them? You know, we don't go into specific details for, for, for obvious security reasons, but the, 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 the macro overview is really training individuals, you know, for, for to be able to see what is uh, out of place, what is, uh, and, and how to respond to that, and how to be able to work in coordination with local law enforcement, how to report incidents that are taking place, and how to be well-trained on how to uh, be able to spot situational things that are taking place at a high level before uh, before they before they happen, is a car in the wrong place? Is uh, you know is is is, is, is what, what is out of place? And a volunteer is is more engaged in that process than anyone because no one's going to care more about who's in the synagogue than they are. It's their family and friends, and no one's going to be more familiar after training uh, about what is what fits in and doesn't fit into a synagogue because they know the physical plant better than someone that's coming from the outside who's only there. Uh, you know, for for that one for that one Shabbos, uh, doing private security. So there's there's an added layer there of understanding what they already know and taking advantage of that and being trained in the same way that volunteers have been trained for over 60 years in other communities, uh, Jewish communities across the country, and in, 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 sorry, across the globe, in Europe, in South Africa, you know, Australia, and Latin America. What we're do, the trainings that we're doing that are completely vetted. Uh, for over 60 years, we have a security council, a former senior law enforcement, all reviewing our materials and making sure that our volunteers are, are being trained consistently at the highest level uh, to be able to be outside their synagogues in their team format, uh, protecting their shul. Evan Bernstein telling us how the training program essentially works. So the way it works is we have a program called Entry Point, which is a, a more broad-based online training for the entire congregation. And once the congregation goes through entry point, which part of the entry point is learning about what volunteer security is, because many people are not familiar. Typically from that training, we will get a, a good number of people that are now interested in actually formulating a team at their synagogue. And then from there, as they put together a group, they will then go through a second, round, a second level of training. They will actually get those individuals trained, part of it's online and part of it's in person, to actually then have a team. So it's, 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 it's really two stages for a synagogue to learn about what volunteer security is, a very brief one-hour interactive training, and then to, uh, when, once the people that raise their hand and say, we want to do this and it's a critical mass to be able to do it, and the synagogue is on board, then we then train those individuals. And every synagogue, depending on size, has different size of teams that are in the hopper. And at a given Shabbos, as an example, I'm on two different teams, two different size synagogues. One of our synagogues has four volunteers on shift every Shabbos, and the other synagogue only has two because it's a much smaller, uh, much smaller synagogue. So a lot of it depends on on the size in, in, in the, of the congregation and also the physical plant, and there's a lot of different variables that are in play. Can Can you give us a scenario as to a potential threat and how a team might respond? So as an example, you know, we've had situations which uh, we've had, uh, you know, in Riverdale where there was you know, an individual throwing stones at the synagogues and actually threw stones at our volunteers. And in, instead of those volunteers directly engaging with the perpetrator, 
They knew that the cameras that were installed were able to capture the individual. They were able to get descriptions themselves of what was taking place. And then they were able to then uh, communicate that in real time to law enforcement and to our partners at CSI and the NYPD. And we're able to work together to able to get the arrest of the individual within two days. So their eyes and ears on the ground and being there not only help protect the synagogue, but it also uh, allows for information to be gathered that they can be used by law enforcement to help make an arrest. And that's a perfect example where law enforcement loves the volunteer security model because they can't be everywhere all the time. Having trained volunteers that, that are aware of what incidents are and how to report them is critical because you can't have a police officer outside of every synagogue, but if a team is out there and they know what to look for, they can quickly re- report incidents to law enforcement. To CSS address equipment and facilities, or is it just the, the, the training of individuals? We, 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 there's no charge for any synagogue to go through the training, the multi-layered trainings of CSS. The only expense that's incurred by the synagogue um, is, is, is minimal equipment. Uh, which is min- really minimal cost. And if, the, and if a synagogue has an issue with the equipment, we can always help them try to find funding uh, for that. Do you, do you help uh, or do you make suggestions for cameras and lighting and security systems, things like that? That's where we would actually bring in our partner in the New York area. We would bring in Secure Communities Initiative and Mitch Silber and his team. And a perfect example of that is when I was in Long Island speaking on the Shabbat, and I, one of the synagogues I spoke at did not have a full threat assessment. Um, and so the first thing they did after Shabbat was over was contact the CSI and talk to Mitch and get his team out there to do the threat assessment and start having those conversations about other types of trainings that we don't do at CSS. So really the two organizations really complement one another and we do work really well in tandem, especially in the New York area and it's a very special relationship. I guess I guess one of the philosophical questions these days is, should synagogues have their doors open, or do they basically want to lock down their buildings to make sure their people are safe? How do you answer that? What do you think? I think it's a balance. I think it's a very careful balance. I think you need to be inclusive and welcoming, but I think you need to have people that are outside of your facility that are aware of what fits in and what doesn't fit in and that can uh, evaluate quickly uh, without bias. Uh, you know, we have unconscious bias training at CSS. We have Jews of color training at CSS. But do it in a way that we train people uh, where, where, without bias to be able to figure out what fits in and what doesn't fit in. No one knows the congregation better. And I think that allows for a more of an open policy because there's certain ways of, of allowing, you know, for people to be able to approach a synagogue and quickly be able to know whether or not this is someone that is, uh, you know, that, that fits in or doesn't fit in or, uh, you know, has a reason for being there. And, and there's, a, there's ways of doing that, uh, but still maintaining that balance of uh, still having an open door. I think it has to be a balance. It can't be either or. I don't think you, you know, you, you want to have castle, you know, castle moats around synagogues, obviously, but, you know, and I, but I do think there needs to be uh, a conversation around security that may make things a little bit less open than they have been in years past because security has to be thought of uh, in, in such a way. Which brings us to Rabbi David Warshaw. At this point in time, you will find that uh, although people are obviously extremely concerned and we're quite upset and, and 
and outraged, if you will, and deeply hurt by what happened in Colleyville. Um, the synagogues, at least I can speak for, uh, are certainly going to be opening and functioning fully, uh, welcoming people to come with a watchful eye on, in terms of security, but at the same time maintaining uh, a routine type of service and a very welcoming atmosphere and try to keep things as normal as possible. Rabbi Warshaw is the president of the National Council of Young Israel. We have the National Coordinating Body Coordinating Organization for over 100 Orthodox synagogues in the United States. And in addition, we have branches in Israel as well. Uh, we're a 100-plus year, organi- uh, year old organization. Uh, we serve our local branches by providing programming, by encouraging them to share programming and, and ideas with each other, and by just basically doing whatever we can to help them in various ways. Um, when it comes to security, uh, we are we just recently, just in the last couple of weeks, I believe you spoke with Evan Bernstein, uh, in the last couple of weeks we uh, just entered into a, an agreement with CSS, Junior uh, uh, Security Services, um, through which we're going to be encouraging all our synagogues uh, to... Uh, become partners and take advantage of the CSS security program, which emphasizes local members, people in the local synagogues, volunteers, to uh, act as security personnel fuel for their congregations. And we're and obviously in light of what happened in Colleyville, this is something that we're doing again. We just sent out another reminder, uh, urging our congregations to contact CSS and to arrange for training and the various programs that they offer. As for how the program works for Rabbi Warshaw and the synagogues he helps counsel? Well, number one, the the CSS program, as I said, focuses on the use of individual volunteers from the the synagogue in question. So that if you have, number one, you you have personnel standing, individuals standing outside of the building uh, where there's a clear, visible presence of, of security. Um, individuals are checked when they come to the to the entrance to the synagogue. They, if they have bags, they're checked. Uh, the volunteers from the synagogue will know virtually anybody who is a regular attendee at services. So therefore, if there's someone who they may not know, they'll devote a little bit more time to perhaps say hello to that person, but also trying to get a sense of who they are, etc. Uh, if there's someone's guest or what have you. Um, the training also provides for, for all kind of uh, situations, whether it's an active shooter, or there's other kinds of situations that go on, the CSS person will go through that type of training as well. But I think for the average congregant, knowing that you have people that are clearly visible to the general public, that provides an element of security. And at the same time, for any potential individual who might potentially be considering some sort of act against the institution, by seeing these personnel clearly visible at the at the synagogue, uh, that acts as somewhat of a deterrent as well. Prior to Colleyville, had you considered that you might be facing the kind of situation they had there with someone taking a hostages? To be very honest, I don't know if that's something that you think about consciously, but obviously, with what happened in Pittsburgh and and Powley and other and other situations. Um, we are aware, obviously, of the of the level of anti-Semitism, the acts of anti-Semitism that have increased over the last couple of years, and certainly very active today. So I think subconsciously you are aware of it. 
Uh, and now, I guess, since Colleyville, that's going to certainly be a very active reminder that this could happen anywhere. Let's face it, Colleyville was not in the middle of some major Jewish community or large city. It was a kind of a you know an out of the way type of place that was selected for whatever reason by that terrorist. But um, it just showed that it could happen anywhere. And therefore, I think any institution, any house of worship, wherever they are, uh, now needs to raise that level of security and a level of awareness that it could happen. It could happen anyplace. And back to Evan Bernstein from the training organization Community Security Service. He wrote an op-ed a month ago, before the holiday season, urging communities to keep their guard up. I think that for me, the opposite also was was also about trying to keep anti-Semitism in the threats around anti-Semitism at the forefront of the American Jewish population, especially when I wrote it around the high holidays, because that's a time where we always start thinking about threat assessments and our and our communal security around the holidays. I think the challenge is, and I hope it doesn't happen now after Texas, but after these events that we've seen, one of those Pittsburgh Poway, Jersey City, Muncie, I mean, even after. Muncie in Jersey City we had over 20,000 people walking over the Brooklyn Bridge because of anti-Semitism and acts of hate towards Jews. And then I think as COVID hit, people started getting more and more complacent and thinking less and less and less about anti-Semitism and the impact the anti-Semitism could have. And I think the news cycle, unfortunately, drives people's interest in security. And then once the news cycle dissipates, people start thinking about it less. And I think the, the reason in, 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 for my writing that piece was that we as a community can't take a breather when it comes to security or thinking about being diligent around security because you never know when the next threat is going to happen. Because if you look at the majority of the, th- the issues that have taken place, they were not during the high holidays. They were on random Shabbats. Uh, and I think that is where we have to be cognizant and always be diligent. His concern and his diligence, we, we keep seeing the numbers going up. And you're talking about being complacent, but why do you think the number of anti-Semitic incidents continues to rise? Well, I think the systems that allow it, I mean, I think our society has gone into polar extremes. And when you ever have seen polar extremes in in history, uh, that's when radicalization can take place. And so when you start seeing, you know, nationalists or white supremacists that are, that are pushing the envelope, the anti-Semitism is typically part of their, uh, their rhetoric and their narrative. In the same way we saw in Charlottesville, the Jews will not replace us. And then if you look at, you know, radical Islamic extremism uh, or Islamic jihadists that we're now clearly seeing, that these are radicalized factions of different movements. And when you have that throughout history, and we've certainly seen it in Europe play out on both the far right and on the far left, anti-Semitism comes out of that and acts of, of, of Jew hatred come out of that and I think now with, with the advent of the internet and the people that are having those extreme beliefs can communicate with each other in real time and not be just by themselves in, the, in their basement of their home but now have real honest to goodness conversations over the internet with other people around the country it allows for that radical thought process to metastasize uh, either, uh, from either, either spectrum and that is, I think, what's leading to more and more anti-Semitism. Do you differentiate between foreign and domestic threats? Are they similar? Or are they different? How do you see that? You know, in the conversations I've had with with different, you know, with different groups, uh, you know, whether it's uh, the ADL Center in Extremism or other groups, is you know, there's always been threats from both. And if you look at, you know, 
uh, the different people. Some people were, were, you know, were based here in the United States fully. Others uh, came from other countries. You know, there, there's a lot of threat, and it's coming from, very, from various different uh, from various different players, which makes it so complicated uh, to be able to track and to to be able to monitor. Getting back to Colleyville, what should we take from that incident? What can we learn? I think we have to learn that that, that training uh, congregants is critical. Uh, security training of all kinds is critical, and that people need to invest in it. And even though a synagogue like Hollyville, who doesn't have a lot of resources to pay for private security or pay for off-duty law enforcement or have um, those other kinds of things, based on what I've what I've read, it's that they uh, the synagogues, no matter no matter what, need to utilize the resources that are available to them from the varying groups, just like they did with the ADL and with with SCN and, and hopefully synagogues also will start using CSS around volunteer security because I think all these organizations are all offering uh, tremendous resources and I think that it shows that the resources that are being offered are very, very valuable and uh, are needed by every synagogue uh, in, the, in the United States. And to stress again, this training is free. Yeah, CSS training is, free, is 100% free the volunteers. Great. Evan, is there anything else that you want to add? No, I think you, you covered a lot. I think I, I think we just have to be, again, keenly aware of the rise of anti-Semitism and what that looks like. And, and again, I think, as, as I said, finding that balance between having that open door, but having still having a robust security program and a secure perimeter for a synagogue is critical. And we need to find that balance in every synagogue. Eight eighty in depth is a production of WCBS News Radio eight eighty. The executive producers are Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Sheld. Find us on the Odyssey app to hear us on demand every week or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for WCBS eight eighty in depth. Thank you for listening and please be safe. really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.